We're turning now to John chapter 20. And uh, the first few verses there, if you don't have a Bible, please use the one in front of you. I'd love for you to follow along. And that's on page 906. The last few weeks here at Community, we've been uh, considering John's passion narrative and his record of the death and resurrection of Christ. So we've spent uh, three weeks in chapter 19, and now we're, uh, and we certainly have covered to some extent the bad news. Today we come to the, the greatest news of all John 20. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. That's something I say most weeks, life-giving word. I just want to remind you what I mean by that when I say it. If you want to have the same resurrection life that Jesus has, you need to believe his word. That's how it comes to you. And so I'm not reading you a story. This isn't story time. This is a time for you to be transformed from death to life. Read it with that consideration. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth. Which had, on, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Well, in John's account of the resurrection, he includes himself as an eyewitness. He is the character repeatedly referred to as the other disciple. Um, Sort of a a self-deprecating or a humble way to speak of himself. He doesn't want to draw too much attention to himself. And yet there is something he really wants you to know about this other disciple. About John. He wants you to know that he's a faster runner than Peter. <laughs> he mentions that three times. I, gives us a little window into the relationship, the dynamic between these two, perhaps always competing. But um, he really wants you to know that they were going towards the tomb and they were running together, but I outran him. And then later he wants to, you to remember the other disciple, the, the one who got there first. That was, that was me. I was the one who got there first. So John wants us to know he's fast. Good for you, John. Good for you. But then there's something else he wants us to know that's, of course, of much more significance. He wants you to know that this is the day he was converted. 
Isn't that interesting? In his resurrection account, he includes himself in the story to say, this is the day when it all changed for me. This is the day when I went from sort of understanding, sometimes doubting, not really getting it, to getting it, to becoming a believer. You see it in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. Then the other disciple, the one who reached the tomb. We get it, John. We get it. Then the other disciple also went in, and he saw and believed. You know, that's what I want for every single person here today. I want you to believe in the resurrection. And if you already believe in the resurrection, I want you to continue in that belief. I want you to be able to have such a a conviction that John has that he would write this entire book. He says, at least two places, this is written that you would believe. If you're not a Christian today, I want today to be the day that years down the road you tell other people, just as John would tell people about his account. I want it to be today. I don't want you to wait. The day that you believed Jesus and everything he claimed about himself, it's all real. Especially, most importantly, the resurrection. He saw and he believed. What does he see that occasions that belief? Two things, briefly today. First, obviously, the main thing that he sees is that there's something missing. Right? Something that's not there. And that's the body of Christ. And this is the fundamental, foundational fact for why John believes that Jesus is more than just a mere man. The the paradigm shift took place in John's heart and in his mind and in his life. The paradigm shift happened because of the simple fact that on Friday night he was in a tomb and on Sunday morning he wasn't. And this needs to be the foundational, fundamental uh, reason for everyone to be a Christian. That there is an empty tomb. It's as simple as that. We have every reason to believe that there was no body there. And the reason that there was no body there was because that body was raised to life. Now, alternatives are offered ad infinitum for what happened to the body apart from a resurrection, apart from the fact that a dead man walked out of the tomb. But all of these alternatives fall far short of making any sense. What are some of those alternatives? Well, some people say Mary uh, Magdalene went to the wrong tomb. That's kind of rude, I think, in terms of what we think about Mary's directional capabilities. But but this whole, this whole Easter business is all predicated on the fact that she just went to the wrong tomb. Well, that wouldn't be. That can't be. Why? Because all anybody would have to do, Jews or Romans, would be to point them to the right tomb. Okay? You, want, you see an empty tomb? We'll show you where he really is. But nobody can do that. Well, some people suggest uh, that the disciples stole the body. Well, it couldn't have been them because the Romans had stationed guards to prevent that very thing. Well, then some people say maybe the Romans hid the body. Well, that's the last thing they wanted. All they wanted was to produce a body to quell the uprising of this Christian movement. 
If the Romans had the body, they would have shown it right away. Look, here he is. Now, can you all go back to your homes and quit making a ruckus? And can we get back to the peace that we have known before Jesus came and started stirring everybody up? And so the question that is left to us is, what are you going to do with the empty tomb? What are you going to do with that fact? Tim Keller points out that most people assume that when it comes to the resurrection, the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it happened. And this is what he says. He says, that is not completely the case. The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It's not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must then come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for where all these Christians came from. You following what he's saying? You need to give a historical answer for how the church came into existence if the resurrection didn't really happen. So you can't just say as a, as a skeptic, well, Christian, you need to prove that he was raised. The Christian can go back and say, you need to prove that he wasn't. Because if he wasn't, where did Christianity come from? The Bible's answer to the birth of the church, the birth of this Christian movement, is clear and it's straightforward. It's the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's how this movement we call Christianity began. People saw the risen Jesus, and they believed, and they told others about the risen Jesus, and they believed too. Paul uses this argumentation in 1 Corinthians 15. He's writing to the church there, not 300 years after Jesus was raised, not 200, not 100, not 50, about 12 years after the resurrection. The first account we have of a risen Christ isn't actually the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the epistles that Paul wrote. And in 1 Corinthians, 12, maybe 15 years after the resurrection, in chapter 15, he speaks to the fact that Jesus appeared to more than 500 witnesses, and then he makes this curious comment, many of whom are still alive today. Now, why does Paul draw our attention to the fact that these eyewitnesses are still alive at the time of his writing? Well, he's saying to the Corinthians, if you don't believe me, You can find these people. They're out there. They're still alive. Tim Keller says, Paul was inviting anybody who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and to talk to eyewitnesses if they wanted. It was a bold challenge and one that could be easily taken up since during the Pax Romana, travel around the Mediterranean was safe and it was easy. Paul could not have made such a challenge if those eyewitnesses didn't exist, but they did. People saw Jesus, and they believed, and the church is born. That's the Bible's answer. Um, History gives us the same answer. The church began because of the resurrection. That's what history tells us, too. Thirty years after the crucifixion, the Roman emperor Nero blamed uh, that great fire in Rome on Christians. Why did he do that? Well, because they were a pain to him. They were causing such a ruckus in Rome. The movement, 30 years later, had already grown and spread in that short amount of time. And this is what the first century historian Tacitus, he's a Roman, explains about that event. So this is not a Christian writing. This is not a, a Jew writing. This is a Roman historian In the first century, he writes this, quote, 
Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a, listen to this. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for a moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So he mentions a most mischievous superstition that surrounded this Christus figure. What would that superstition be? How about the fact that he was God, that he was divine? And then, then Tacitus says, well, that superstition was checked for a moment. When would that have been? How about the crucifixion? Here's somebody claiming he's God, come in the flesh, and then he dies. Well, now, well, that, that puts to bed that rumor. But then the resurrection happens. And Tacitus says that what was checked for a moment broke out. Now, not only in Jerusalem, but even the whole way to Rome. When the resurrection comes, the church goes forward and grows. And it's been growing ever since. Rebecca McLaughlin explains in the new book, Is Easter Unbelievable? Hopefully many of you have a copy of that. We've given out about 100 the last three weeks. Encourage you to read it. Let me just give you a few sentences. She says, by 300 AD, despite intense periods of persecution, historians estimate that 10% of the Roman Empire was Christian. Today, today, 1,700 years later, Almost one in three humans across the globe identify as followers of Jesus, making Christianity the most popular belief system in the world. And so you have to ask, if you are an unbeliever today, if you're a skeptic, if you're curious about all this, you have to ask, how did that happen? Why did it happen? And the answer that the Bible and that history gives is that it happened because Jesus really was raised. That's where the church came from. That's where Christianity came from. The empty tomb is all the proof you need. John saw it, and he believed. So when he recounts his conversion, we said he saw something and he believed. What did he see? The first thing was actually that something was missing. There's something else, though, that he saw. Secondly, and this, this, is, uh, this is something that helped form and fill out his new faith, and it's something that will fuel your faith today as well, dear Christian. First, he saw something that was missing. But secondly, he saw something that was actually there. It's the grave clothes. That's the second thing he sees, the grave clothes. And so that means that the, the term, the empty tomb, is a bit of a misnomer. Um, really, the sermon today should have been titled, The Mostly Empty Tomb. The mostly empty tomb. And it's significant. And I want to suggest to you that seeing the grave clothes injected more faith in John than the missing body. Did you hear that? The grave clothes meant more to John than the fact that the body was missing. Now, why do I say that? Hang with me here because this is so important. And this will give you such encouragement. For one thing, I say that because when it says John saw and believed, I do not think it's saying John saw and he believed in resurrection, that people could be raised. He already believed that. 
He already saw it in Lazarus. He was there when a dead guy got out of the grave. So it can't be saying he saw that Jesus was missing and believed that people could come back to life. He already believed that. You understand? No, actually, what's happening here has everything to do with Lazarus that makes this detail about the folded up grave clothes and the face cloth so striking to John and something that he insists in including in his account. If you look at John chapter 11, that's the story about Lazarus, and you look to verse 44, you'll see what I mean. John eleven forty four. What does John see when Lazarus was raised? Verse 44. The man who had died, Lazarus, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Lazarus came out of the tomb with the vestiges of death still clinging to him. John looks into Jesus' tomb and he sees that the vestiges of death have been left behind. And so do you understand what, what he is understanding at that moment? Do you, do you see what clicks for John at that moment? The linen cloths are proof that there is no death still clinging to Jesus. He leaves it entirely in the grave. He doesn't bring any death back with him. Lazarus came out of the tomb wrapped in his grave clothes. Do you know why? Because he was going to need them again. So he brought them with him. Jesus leaves them in the grave because he says, I have no more need of you. Now that I've been raised, I will never die again. Romans 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so he says, I don't need you. I'm going to leave you here. And this changes everything for John. Because what, what he's seeing is that it's not simply that somebody, as miraculous as it would have been, uh, was brought back to life, walked out of the tomb, and yet would end up back there someday again. That was Lazarus. No, this is somebody who has total mastery over death, total mastery over every imperfection in life, every weakness, even like losing your voice. Thank you, Brian. Right? Every imperfection, every weakness we have, every infirmity... It's just a point leading to death. I'm losing my voice today. Why? Because I'm a mortal being. I'm going to die. You get a cold. Why? Because you're going to die someday. Our bodies aren't perfect. Jesus leaves the grave clothes there because he says, I got this. I've completely defeated death. It can't come for me anymore. You need to understand, friends, today that, that the linen cloths there teach us They teach us that Jesus didn't merely give a tough blow to death on Easter Sunday, but he dealt a death blow to death on Easter Sunday. Amen? This is what John saw. He sees somebody who has total mastery over life and death. Someone who seems to just 
pass through the grave clothes and leave them perfectly arranged. That's what those details are all about there. And, and the face cloth, not with the others, but kind of arranged in a separate place. It's as though, it's as though he just kind of passed through them. And so, there in verse 8, John is not simply believing in the resurrection when it says he saw and he believed. No, he's believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He sees that he's the Messiah sent from God to deal with death. It's what scriptures had foretold, but he never saw it until now. And now, now he believes Jesus is all and only and always life. That's who he is. I want you to know this is what Jesus can do for all who believe in him. He can totally defeat the power of death for you. And so I want to say to you today that the mostly empty tomb teaches a better lesson than an empty tomb, an entirely empty tomb. The mostly empty tomb fills us with such hope. Such comfort. Learn from this mostly empty tomb where Jesus left behind the grave clothes that he has dealt the death blow to death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Do you believe? That's the question. As we conclude, I want to suggest that some of you today are probably like John. John was his close disciple, the one he was closest to, right? For three years, he spent most of his time with Jesus. Well, maybe you're like John. Uh, You're a member of this church. I see a number of visitors here. Maybe you're a member of another church. You've grown up your whole life in a Christian community, and, and you don't have anything against Jesus at all. You're, you're close to him, you would say. You, you appreciate him. You consider him your friend. He's a nice guy. But if pressed, you would have to admit that you don't actually live by the claims that he makes. And you don't believe the claims that he makes. And so instead, you live your life on your own terms. But you see, if the resurrection really happened, none of us have that luxury. If Jesus is raised, he is God, and you aren't. And so you have to quit paying lip service to him by joining a church or by showing up on Easter or Christmas or by saying you you hold to Christian conservative values and think that that makes you on good terms with God. No, you need to understand that if death doesn't control him, that means he controls your life. The one who can't be controlled by death controls your life. You bow to him. You submit to him. You recognize he's your king. If the resurrection really happened, you have to take all that he says, all of his claims. Some of you perhaps are like John, friends with Jesus, and yet you didn't really see it. Well, John saw it, and he believed. You need to believe. Some of you, though, are perhaps more skeptical. You scoff at the idea of a person who could step out of the grave. You wonder how, in fact... You are sitting in a room with uh, the people, the majority of whom actually believe this stuff. We do. Well, why don't you believe? Maybe you think it's because you haven't seen what John has seen, right? 
John got to actually be there, you, you protest. How can anyone expect me to buy the charade 2,000 years later? If I could see what John saw, then yeah, maybe, maybe I would believe. Well, yeah, John saw an empty tomb, and then he believed. And yet, did you notice in the text, in verse 9, he seems to present that fact to his shame. What does it say? He saw and believed, for as yet, that is up to this point, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John's saying, it shouldn't have taken me so long. I shouldn't have been so slow to believe. I should not have needed an empty tomb, John is saying. It was right there the whole time in God's word, prophecies promising that this is what would happen. In Matthew's account, it's even more clearly stated, he's raised just as he said. He's been telling us this whole time. John's saying, I should have believed from the start. So he writes this as an eyewitness account, and that helps us. That undergirds our faith, certainly, but I think he, he seems to include that line there about, yet we did not understand the scriptures as though to say, you shouldn't need an eyewitness account because you have the word of God. And maybe you don't know this today, friends, but did you know the word of God is actually more reliable more trustworthy, and more true even than firsthand eyewitness accounts. Because God never lies. God's word is sure, and that's what we have. And so then the question is, well, why, why do I still not believe? Well, now we have the answer because you don't believe the word of God. You don't believe the scriptures. That's why you don't believe in the resurrection. It's not about evidences. It's not about powerful preachers. I could preach my lungs out, which I think maybe I am about to. I could preach here for hours and give you all the best apologetic arguments, give you all the evidences, and yet you still would not believe because you're dead in your sins and trespasses because you do not believe the word of God. But God can change that. He raised his son from the grave to show you that he can raise you from death to life. Yes, you're dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. What's that mean? Together with Christ. We are as alive as he is when we believe. God can do that for you. God can do that. That's what the scriptures tell us. Faith comes by hearing. In hearing the word of Christ, your disbelief doesn't have anything to do with rational arguments. Your disbelief has to do with the fact that you don't trust God's word. Well, God can change that. Even if the resurrection still seems incredulous to you, you have to admit, you know there is a God. And that he is going to have dealings with you and that, that those dealings will not go over well because you are a sinner. And so you need to pray, Lord, make me to believe what seems so unbelievable to me. Because this I know, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. Give me faith in him. Jesus says he will be that Savior for those who come to him. And so you pray, so I'm coming to him now, God. I don't really even know what I'm doing, but, but I'm coming to him now. Even with my doubts and my questions. But this is what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I need him. We're going to pray here in a moment. 
And there are some of you here today who need to pray that prayer. So I'm going to invite us to bow our heads and we're going to pray silently as we reflect on this. Uh, but if, if this is you today and you're struggling with these things, why don't you just use these words? I'll say them out loud, but you can use them in your heart. Jesus, I need you. I am a sinner and I'm destined for death. But you give the life I need. Have mercy on me. Jesus, I need you. I need you to deal a death blow to death for me. Give me the faith that I lack. Oh, Father, we thank you for a risen Christ. Would you strengthen our faith in him today and to the very end. Amen.